Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of the Marine Corps War College, covering the intersection of strategy, security, and warfare. Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of the Marine Corps War College. Today, we're discussing maritime strategic thought. My guests today are Paul Westermeyer and Brianne Robertson. Mr. Westermeyer is a historian who joined the History Division at the United States Marine Corps back in 2005. He earned his B.A. in History and Master's in Military History from The Ohio State University. He's a recipient of the Marine Corps Heritage Foundation's Brigadier General Edward Simmons Henry I. Shaw Award in 2015 for his book U.S. Marines in the Gulf War, 1990-1991, Liberating Kuwait. He's also the author of U.S. Marines in Battle, Al-Kafi, 28 January to 1 February 1991, and the editor of four books, including the one we're talking about today, The Legacy of American Naval Power, Reinvigorating Maritime Strategic Thought. Dr. Robertson is a historian with the Marine Corps History Division, where she writes about Marine Corps history and art. Her publications include essays on Marine Corps actions in the Dominican Republic, 1916-1924, and U.S. Latin American cultural diplomacy in the World War II era, social study textbooks, and public murals. In 2016, she participated in the Hooley Board investigation that corrected the identification of the second flag raisers in Joe Rosenthal's famous photograph, and she's currently completing Investigating EWO, The Flag Raisers in Myth, Memory, and Esprit de Corps, an edited volume to be published by Marine Corps History Division later this year. And Dr. Robertson, we will definitely have you back on the podcast to talk about those <laughs> findings when you are able to discuss them. She holds a PhD from the University of Maryland, an MA from the University of Texas, Hookham, I'm also a Longhorn, and a BA from the University of Missouri. Dr. Robertson, Mr. Westermeyer, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for Thank having you. us. Before we start our discussion on maritime strategic thought, tell us a little about your background working with the Marine Corps. What brought you to the topic of Marine Corps history? Well, I've always been interested in uh, military history from a very young age as a child. And uh, as I got older, I enlisted in the Corps. I was a 0311 Terminal Lance Corporal, serving with uh, 3-2 in the early 1990s. I studied military history at Ohio State under uh, some of the great military historians, uh, Dr. John Gilmartin, who wrote Gunpowder and Galleys, and uh, the uh, Dean of um, Marine Corps History, uh, Dr. Alan R. Millett, the author of uh, Semper Fidelis. And then I taught history uh, at various uh, liberal arts and community colleges for seven years before I came here. Oh, wow. Great. Uh, my research uh, has focused on U.S.-Latin American relations and especially on cultural diplomacy. Um, the Marine Corps has a long history in the Western Hemisphere, um, although we often think of the military as providing forceful persuasion, such as happened during the Banana Wars. Uh, the Marine Corps has also offered humanitarian aid after natural disasters, for example, the 2010 earthquake in Haiti. Uh, I'm really interested in this duality in Marine Corps identity and purpose and how it shapes perceptions of the Corps. That's really interesting. So the History Division just published an anthology on maritime strategic thought, and I'll note for our listeners who might not be aware, all History Division publications, all Marine Corps University Press publications are available for free. So you can download the anthology we're talking about today through the Marine Corps University website under the Outreach tab, or you can request a print copy directly through the website. So to the both of you, what brought you to this topic during a period where the overwhelming preponderance of Marines' operational experience is fighting on the land from land, why engage in the question of naval power? Well, the uh, primary impetus was the uh, outgoing, currently outgoing president of Marine Corps University, General Bowers, 
When he first came to the university in the summer of 2017, he had a vision of a lecture series that all of the students in the various colleges at the university would attend. The first series, he wanted to discuss the legacy of Bella Wood as the centenary of that battle approached and really focus on uh, Commandant Krulak's concept that the Marine Corps exists to make Marines and win battles. After the success of that series, he wanted a second series for the following year focused on maritime strategic thought in support of the Corps' renewed focus on maritime functions after OIF ended and as OEF was winding down, with the increased focus on the Pacific and the maritime threat that the Navy and the Marine Corps were now looking at anew after the War on Terror. The new series was called Reinvigorating Maritime Strategic Thought, The Future of Naval Expeditionary Forces, and this anthology, The Legacy of American Naval Power, was designed to support those lectures. Great. So talk about the organization of the book. The different pieces are organized in a rough chronological arrangement, but did you see any strong themes that resonate throughout the different era? We did. The organization appears roughly chronological, probably because as a historian, I tend to focus on chronology. It's something that's a primary concern for me. Certainly, The Legacy of Bella Wood, the first anthology in the series, is pretty rigidly chronological. But The Legacy of American Naval Power is primarily organized according to subject and designed to prepare the reader for each chapter in turn as they look at each topic. The foreword from the Commandant General Neller focuses on the importance of maritime affairs to the Marine Corps. And then the preface is by one of our leading naval strategists, Captain Wayne Hughes, and he lays out seven cornerstones of Marine Corps operations. And both of these are combined with my article, A Brief Introduction to the History of Maritime Strategy, which lays out how the concepts of maritime strategy came to be from the very beginning with Thucydides and so on through to eventually Mahan and Corbett. It also lays out how Maritime strategy is simply strategy on the maritime stage. It's just strategy at sea. And finally, for the students, the students at command and staff or the, the War College, it focuses on the idea that strategic, operational, and tactical level wars are interdependent, they're connected to each other, and that they all support the grand strategic or policy level. So that the uh, subjects as we go forward the students will be able to connect them to each of these three levels. So each chapter is maritime strategy, but it's not maritime strategy in isolation because you can't separate strategy from tactics or tactics from policy. And this, I think, is, I think you've identified two of the real strengths of the anthology as I see it. And I'm not a military historian, so I'm reading these, I will say, with fresh eyes. <laughs> but one, you can read the commandant's Note in the beginning, you can read the forward, you can read your chapter, and within about 30, maybe 40 pages, you have a great overview of this topic. And so if, like me, you're new to maritime thought or naval strategy, you don't have to read the whole 300-something pages of the anthology to really understand or deepen your appreciation of the subject matter. You can do it very efficiently, but then as your interest or, or your needs arise, you could read the entire thing from cover to cover, and my hunch is there'll be a number of folks who will, because it is it is a really engaging, wide breadth of experience. The authors who you've brought together have collected in this piece. I mean, you've got some of the heavy hitters from across generations. 
But you could also deep dive into a particular area depending on your interest or, or necessity. And that's a real value to a piece, I think. Right. And th- that's the intent. It's a it's a primer on maritime strategy. And the intent is that with, as you mentioned, the, the first 30 pages or so, the, the foundation's laid. And then you can look at each chapter. If you read them in order, chapter one builds the chapter two, which builds the chapter three and so forth. In much the way that General Bauer's lecture series built one after the other, the first chapter deals with the growth of American maritime power, especially the Marine Corps' unique role within the color plans and the the way that Mahan influenced the development of the Navy and the Marine Corps in the early part of the 20th century as well as in the 19th century. Chapter two then looks at submarines and aviation and how they impacted maritime strategy. The basic premise being that although most visionaries thought that they would completely upset strategic thought, and this was true not just of maritime strategy, but of strategy in general, that aviation was going to end strategy, that all you were going to do is bomb the other side into submission. Submarines were going to eliminate the need for battleships or any other sort of warship. But in each case, instead of eliminating strategy, what we find is that these new technologies have merely altered the time distance factors involved, whether for knowledge or for firepower or for transporting men and equipment from point A to point B. Chapter three builds on that by looking at more advanced technological advances, nuclear weapons, cyber warfare, and drone warfare, as well as alternative maritime strategies, such as the Soviet maritime strategy of Admiral Gorshkov, which was a different take on how to project power without the sort of deep water Navy that the United States was wedded to. It also discusses the Marine Corps' continuing mature role in American maritime strategy and the role of General Gray in developing uh, Marine Corps strategic thought, and especially with the doctrinal manual of warfighting. Finally, the uh, last lecture in the series, General Bowers was able to get the uh, Commandant of the Marine Corps, General Neller, and uh, Admiral Richardson, the Chief of Naval Operations, to come and give the final lecture. So the final chapter focuses on the current and future maritime strategies of the United States, but it does so by asking that the reader understand the future by looking at the past. And so as if you read the, the uh, articles in the last chapter, all of them, whether they're looking at humanitarian missions or they're looking at the development of the MAGTAF, look at it through a historical lens to predict where it will come in the future, where maritime strategy is likely to end up. So Dr. Robertson, you served as the art editor for the anthology, which I think is just an interesting and unique facet for us to have at a Marine Corps University publication. Talk about your approach to this project. Why does an anthology on maritime strategy need artwork? Were there particular notes or points that you tried to emphasize with the artwork you selected? Sure. Well, so as my introduction suggested, my I have something of an unorthodox background for a military historian. Um, I'm more of a, a, a broader cultural historian. My degree is actually in art history. And so 
too often, I think, art and photographs are treated merely as pretty pictures, but there's so much more than that. Uh, readers will note that the images I selected are contemporary to the events being described. Uh, many of them were created by Navy and Marine Corps artists and photographers who were there, who were responding to what they saw and what they experienced. Uh, for example, Major Jack Dyer was a retired combat artist who had served in Vietnam, but in 1983, he was recalled to active service and sent to Lebanon to record the devastation of the Beirut bombing. His drawing captures not only the rubble of the blast, but also the heavy mood of the moment. Um, as much as a letter or an official report, these images are valuable historical documents that supplement and enrich the articles that they illustrate. Another good example is on the cover. This is a conceptual artwork by P.A. Topper. Completed in 1975, it shows what the Marine Corps anticipated its future would look like. At the time, the Corps had just emerged from Vietnam and was shifting away from counterinsurgency and revitalizing its maritime role. This image perfectly captures the impetus behind the anthology, since Marines today are in a similar situation. The Corps is leaving behind the long wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and renewing its commitment to amphibious warfare. That's really interesting. And, you know, the museum is in the process of hiring a combat artist, and mm -hmm. I can see, one, I thought it was so interesting when I'd heard that that was in the works, because I think of a museum is documenting history, whereas a combat artist is capturing that history. They're sort of creating the history in their documentation. But I, I really appreciate that the Marine Corps, where I, as, a, as a civilian from the outside, but as someone who's worked here for a decade, you think of the Marine Corps as not, not having that connection to a more evocative or I don't even know the word to use to describe it, but I would think of of Marines being focused on the harshly analytical, rational side mm -hmm. of the equation, whereas when I think of art history or the the importance of artwork and in interpreting and understanding theory, it's a very different part of the brain that engages. So I think it's a, a fascinating contribution to have that as part of mm -hmm. a complement to the more rational or or hard-nosed analytical approach to thinking about these topics. Yeah, we worked together very closely, and Brand was wonderful at making the artwork really bring the point of the article out, bringing the concepts to life and showing, especially with some of the future concept artwork, what the people at the time thought the future would look like. And so when we look at some of the artwork for, say, submarines from the 1930s or 1940s or the aviation artwork, and we see how differently things turned out than what they imagined, that in and of itself is an excellent warning to today's students of maritime strategy as they try to imagine where we're going to be in the future and as they consider what we think of as the obvious path forward, how different things can be. Oh, yeah, that's a great the, point. The art makes this book something very different than it would have been without it. It's not the same book without the illustrations. Yeah. So what surprised you both as you pulled this collection together? Were there noticeable gaps in thinking or expression on this topic? Were there insights that you hadn't anticipated? Uh, what surprised you? Well, the, the biggest insights that I found, one was Admiral Gorshkov's Soviet maritime strategy, which was very practically aware of the capability differences between the Soviet Navy and the American Navy at the time, but it wasn't defeatist, and it presented a very different look 
at how you can project maritime power in what we would think of as non-traditional ways. And so I thought that that was a, a very good insight for those who get caught in the American military, the American naval way of doing things. Uh, I was also pleasantly surprised by the continued relevance of Julian Corbett's contributions to maritime strategic thought, especially in comparison to Mahan, who perhaps hasn't aged as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the nice things I felt about this project is that it allowed us to showcase some of the excellent work that's coming out of Marine Corps University. So for instance, the excerpt on humanitarian assistance was from Commander David Weidelich's master's thesis at Command and Staff College. Mm-hmm. As for gaps, I think we would have liked to have done more to emphasize the role of Asia in the development of maritime strategy. Uh, it's easy to forget that the United States was competing not only with European nations, but Japan had one of the best navies at the turn of the 20th century. Mm. Yeah, looking at the uh, the Japanese influence of Mahan, I really wanted to get an article by the Japanese historian Sato Hasada into there, uh, showing how Mahan shaped Japanese, not just maritime strategy, but political thought mm. throughout the 1920s and 30s, and in many ways shaped how they fought World War II. Unfortunately, we weren't able to secure the rights for mm. that article. And so that was one of the things that, that we would have liked to have gotten in there that we weren't able to. Mm-hmm. So who is the audience for this anthology? Well, so the students at Marine Corps University are our primary audience, um, but we worked to make the book accessible and interesting to a general public as well. To that end, we were gratified to learn last month that Yale University's International Security Studies Institute plans to use the anthology as one of its standard textbooks in spring 2020. And yeah, yeah, we're happy about it. (laughs) Uh, And we've heard that the Asia Pacific Center for Security Studies in Hawaii is interested in using it in a course they're teaching as well. And I'm sure you both volunteered to go give a book talk. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) (laughs) So in addition to this book, if people want to learn more about maritime strategic thought, where can they look? Well, of course, the the first place to look might be within the bibliography in the book, which has an excellent list of articles and books to choose from. But I would suggest two, two works as being particularly relevant and interesting for for new students. One would be Sadao Asado's From Mahan to Pearl Harbor, the Imperial Japanese Navy in the United States from Naval Institute Press, which is the source of the article I mentioned I wish we could have gotten the rights to. An excellent cautionary tale. It shows how the focus on Mahan can go very wrong for a, for a society. Uh, you could argue that it went wrong for uh, Imperial Germany as well prior to the First World War. But in either case, that's an excellent book. So I want to pause really quickly and say, we haven't gotten any hate mail on this podcast to date, even though we have a pretty decent following. I have a hunch that your comments with respect to Mahan (laughs) might bring our first cranky emails. So our listeners, please, we love you. (laughs) Don't hate us. Well, I I wouldn't say, I I, I should not, uh, I hope my comments don't come across as a too much of a diss on Mahan, but uh, some of his uh, some of his thinking hasn't aged as well as it should have. You still have to read him, though. He's mm-hmm. still fundamental. But moving forward, as I mentioned, I think Corbett is probably more relevant. The other author, and I think this is a much more relevant and very modern, is uh, Admiral James Stavridis's Sea Power, The History and Geopolitics of the World's Oceans. 
I would pick this as a first primer for a brand new student to maritime strategic thought who really wants to jump into strategic thought now as opposed to historically. It's a wonderful book. It's very easy to read. Stavridis is brilliant and it lays out current problems and it lays them out within a historical concept in a way that the layperson can understand. So those are the two works that I would I would suggest. Sato is probably of most interest to those who are especially focused on history of strategic, maritime strategic thought. Stavridis's work, though, I would say is, I would almost say every Marine Corps and naval officer should read it, regardless of who they are or rank. Well, oh, I, I will take this. So we are starting a book club at Marine Corps <laughs> University, and we are reading our first book uh, by B.J. Armstrong, Small Boats and Daring Men uh, in July. Uh, so later this month in a couple of weeks. But I will take the Stravitas comment uh, as a, a recommendation for the next quarter's book. Because that sounds great. That's really interesting. So last question to you both, not related to maritime strategy necessarily, but what are you reading right now that our listeners should know about? Well, I'm, I'm working on a, a history of the Frigate Navy, and I hope to actually be reading your uh, book club book soon oh, myself, but I have to get a copy. But currently I'm working- We sold it out on Amazon. I was actually very <laughs> excited about that. You can get it through Kindle. Um, but I'm currently reading Michael Palmer's Stoddart's War, Naval Operations During the Quasi-War with France. This book actually has surprising relevance to the modern, complex maritime operations that we're likely to run into today. It's an undeclared naval war. There's no land operations, and it's dealing primarily with commerce. I would suggest that the South China Sea has lessons from the quasi-war that we could learn. Great. Dr. Robertson? Uh, yeah, so I recently uh, began a new project exploring Marine Corps actions during the Civil War. So um, I'm reading uh, Gary Gallagher and Catherine Meyer's essay, Coming to Terms with the Civil War Military History, um, and it argues for a renewed emphasis on military history and academic analysis of that conflict. Uh, and John and Charles Lockwood's The Siege of Washington, which gives an in-depth account of how vulnerable the nation's capital was in the weeks following the fall of Fort Sumter in April 1861. Oh, Interesting. So Dr. Robertson, Mr. Westermeyer, thank you so much for coming on the show. To keep up with the good work of the Marine Corps War College, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at at McWar College. Follow Marine Corps University on social media at at Marine Corps U. Thanks to our producer, Lieutenant Colonel Mike Byrne. I'm your host, Becky Johnson. Thank you for listening to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically minded, innovative podcast of the Marine Corps War College. This concludes the EGA podcast. Thank you for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the United States Marine Corps or the Department of Defense. You can follow the Marine Corps War College on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at at College. And as always, our podcast music is Stuck in Traffic by Romero. Have a great day.